We've been praying the Psalms, haven't we, to kind of kickstart our new year. We've been working through them book by book. The Psalms are split into these, these five books. We looked originally at a prayer of lament from book one. A couple of weeks ago, Steve looked at a prayer of personal revival from book two. We come today to the start of book three. Book three is the the darkest of the books within the Psalter. It is full of abandonment. It's full of calls for God's judgment upon his enemies. It calls for remembrance. And it calls us to work out a way to live through dark times. We're going to explore Psalm 73 today because Psalm 73 encapsulates a lot of those themes that we find throughout this entire book. I've called it a prayer of honest struggle and hopefully you'll see why as we unpick this. This is a very personal journey. This psalm's credited to a man called Asaph. He's credited with 12 psalms mostly found in book 3, Psalm 73 to 83, and then there's one random Asaph psalm in book 2. He's one of three men with uh, Heman and Ethan that are mentioned in Chronicles, chapter 15 and 16. They were appointed to lead the music when the ark was brought to Jerusalem. This is our very own Richard Cutting. And after that event that is described in Chronicles, Heman and Ethan go to Gibeon, and that's where the altar of sacrifice is. And Asaph goes to Jerusalem with the ark. And it's not until Solomon's temple is built when the altar and the ark are reunited, that those three musicians also come together once again and are reunited as well. Those of you with beady eyes will peek through Psalms 73 to 83 and note that having heard what I've just said, Psalm 74 and 79 are written after the fall of the temple several hundred years later. How can those be Asaph Psalms? Well, there's much scholarship on that. I'll happily chat with some of you guys if you're interested in exploring that a bit more. But basically, it's, it's a stylistic thing. These are Psalms in the style of Asaph, and that's why they're credited here. Why is this important? Why have I spent the first two or three minutes unpicking this? It's important because this is a psalm with a personal voice behind it. There is no reason to conclude that this psalm, Psalm 73, is not that original Asaph, son of Berechiah, one of David's musicians. See, many of the Psalms have beautiful and highly complicated poetic structures. They're perfectly crafted literary pieces that lend themselves to quite complex unpacking and sermons and messages that look at all the different strands of thought. This isn't really one of those. This is like a a kind of stream of consciousness. This is just one man exploring something, and we get to track with Asaph as he works through some of the tensions of our lives. And that's what we're going to do today. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. What a statement to begin. This solid truth. Except for the fact that he then goes on to spend the next 12 verses saying something totally different. You see, that can so often be our experience, can it not? We are steeped in, we get to come here every Sunday and hear scripture read and we learn truth, deep theological powerful truth. And then we walk out those doors and life happens. And it doesn't seem to match up with that opening statement. 
God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now let me tell you all the ways that that's not true. We know God is X, but we just feel he's Y. We know Jesus sets us free from sin. And yet Romans 7 talks about how we fall constantly. We know God's promises are secure. We hear they are yes and amen. And yet when the dark times come, we struggle to rest on them. I once heard someone speak about this and he said, it is important sometimes to let the train of truth pull the carriage of experience and not the other way around. The train of truth needs to draw the carriages of our experience and not the other way around. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It's kind of a spoiler, verse 2. He he says, this is what almost happened. I almost went wrong. And just wait and watch. Because as I take you on this journey, you're going to see how I got myself set right. And he introduces this metaphor of these mountain paths. These slippery places where you can lose your foothold. And this is going to become an important theme throughout. I do a a fair bit of just climbing in the lakes, nothing too hardcore. But I love those sort of scrambly bits as you get towards the summit. You know, when you've really got to find your foothold. And there's a couple of things that you can do to help yourself not lose that foothold. Uh, Firstly, you can look at exactly where you're putting your foot next. You know, step by step and you think, is that solid? Yeah, yeah, I'll go there. Is that, yeah, okay. You can focus on the path ahead. And that can be a good thing to do. Another way of avoiding losing your foothold that I've found that can be quite helpful, as you look ahead, you see where you're going to go. That bit looks fairly, yeah, okay, I'll go up there and then I'll head across to that ledge and I'll pull myself up. That's another way. Do you know what has never helped me climb a mountain? Looking across at the guy on the other path. He's not on my path. He's not on my bit of mountain. And if I climbed a mountain looking that way, I would fall down pretty quickly. But this is what's going on here. This is what Asaph is exploring. He looks across and he says, The wicked, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They're free from the burdens common to man. They're not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. And they clothe themselves with violence. We look around us, don't we, and we see those who are healthy and beautiful and strong. They don't seem to have problems with debt. They don't seem to have problems with depression. They don't seem to have problems with mental health or with sickness or with any of the other things that many of us are facing right here, right now, today. And it gets worse because they're proud of this. Their pride is their necklace. They're saying, look how good my life is. Necklace is something that draws attention. The equivalent of this today is probably not a necklace. It's check out their Instagram account. Check out their social media account. Check out the number of followers they've got. Check out their pride. What they're putting out there all the time, this carefully crafted image. And we know, don't we, there's been so much in the media recently about the huge damage to mental health that social media is wreaking as people try and live up to these proud expectations of others. It says they clothe themselves with violence. The Hebrew word for violence, kamas, can refer to injustice or exploitation as well as physical violence. I was reading just this week about a guy who's made $2.5 billion selling conflict diamonds. $2.5 billion. Imagine what we could do for the kingdom of God 
If New Life Baptist Church was entrusted with $2.5 billion, we don't have that. But that wicked guy who has exploited the suffering of thousands and thousands of people is sitting on a personal fortune of $2.5 billion. You see the challenge that Asaph's facing? From their callous hearts comes iniquity. The evil conceits of their minds know no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. In their arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. There's all sorts of bits we could unpick there. But I just wanted to draw your attention to that last bit. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Heaven's mine and their tongues take possession of the earth and the earth's mine. These guys have made themselves their own God. That's what it means. If you've taken possession of the heavens and the earth, I have raised myself up. I am my own God. Thank you very much. They are their own idol. But it gets worse because therefore their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how can God know? Does the Most High have knowledge? This is interesting, isn't it? Because they're not actually saying there is no God. They say, how can God know? How can the Most High have knowledge? These are what we might now call practical atheists. They're ones who are kind of happy to come out with sentences like, my life's okay without God. It's like, well, I'm saying that there's God, but I don't need it. I'm living as though there isn't God, even though I've kind of conceptually got the idea that maybe there's something out there. How many folks in our world, how many of your friends, colleagues, live in that space where they kind of say, yeah, yeah, well, it's not, there is none, but I don't need him. He's not relevant. These are people who speculate and argue and want to debate, but actually are just quite happy in their own pride, in their own comfort. It's a pretty dark psalm, isn't it, so far? This is what the wicked are like. Always carefree. They increase in wealth. Surely in vain have I kept my heart pure. In vain have I washed my hands in innocence. All day long I've been plagued. I've been punished every morning. God, what is the point? Why do I bother? I'm investing my time and my money and my hopes and my dreams in you, God. And I just don't seem to be getting very much for it. I've tithed for decades and now I'm facing bankruptcy. I've tried to live in purity according to your word and now I find myself alone and lonely. I've served in your church faithfully. I've given hours of my time practically and now I'm in need and there doesn't seem to be anyone who can help me out. What is the point? In vain have I kept my heart pure. Have you ever been here? This is the beautiful honesty of Scripture, friends. This is why I love this book. This book is not full of endless stories of rainbows and sunshine and unicorns. This is an honest struggle. And we've been given a window into the doubts and struggles of one of the foremost spiritual leaders in Israel of that time. This is Chris Tomlin or Keith Getty or Matt Redman or Stephanie Gretzinger or Darlene Check or any of these big names that we hear, these big worship leaders. And we're seeing those people saying, it is pointless, what is the point in it all? 
I might as well give up here and now. This is so important because if we want to interact honestly with God and we want to have the sort of relationship with him that he wants to have with us, we need this kind of integrity. We need to feel free to express our thoughts with him. You're going to think those thoughts anyway. And he knows the deepest parts of you. So why hide? Why do we think things and then try and squash them down and then we pray something else? first time I encountered this was when I was taking my A-levels. This has nothing to do with darkness or, or dark times. But I remember when I was taking my A-levels and the thoughts that was going through my head was, Lord, I just so want to get A's. I want to be able to get the grades that I need to get to uni. But then I thought, I can't pray that. So I prayed something about God giving me the necessary thoughts and helping me to revise well so that perhaps things might go okay on the day. What I meant was, Lord, help me to get the grades I need for uni. We need honesty and integrity when we pray. I was listening to a sermon about this the other day. And the guy said this. He said, it's important to be honest in our prayer life. There are things that you are surviving and processing and getting through day by day by suppressing them and simply pretending that they don't exist. Or there are other things that you want to get out, things that you'd say to your friends, rants that you would have, but God's just not one of the people that you're friends with. That kind of fracturing of your relational life can be deeply unhealthy. The Psalms mentor us in the kind of bold honesty that we can experience with God because spiritual intimacy is built on honesty. The people of Israel, that very name, Israel, is based on two words, Sarah, which is to persist, to contend or to wrestle with, and El, God. These are the people who wrestle with God. God's chosen people are those who wrestle with him. And this is not a criticism. This is when they're at their best. When Israel is at their best, they are engaging with him. They're pushing back against him. They're asking questions. This is why God made us in his image. He didn't want more pets. He wanted people who would engage with him in a meaningful way. That word plagued, nagah, may be rendered to strike or to rebuke. It's often a word connected with God's discipline. Asaph's saying, why, God, are you punishing me? Not a fair question, but an honest one. And then we have this strange change in tone. Around verse 15, it begins to just shift in tone. When he says, if I'd said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed your children. It's as though Asaph's saying, until I'd had time to process and unpick some of this stuff, and we'll see how he did that in a minute, Until I had time to work this out, I didn't voice it publicly because I didn't want to lead others astray. And I think what we see here is the great wisdom of a spiritual leader. This is not someone who is holier than thou, pretending that they never have any struggles, pretending that everything's dandy all the time. This is not someone who is afraid to wrestle with God and to wrestle with their struggles. But it is someone who knows how to do that safely and wisely. It's someone who knows the implications of their words as a leader. 
and when and how to share the struggles and the thoughts that they're going through. When I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. There's great danger in isolation, particularly in dark times. The importance of fellowship, fellowship on a Sunday, fellowship in a life group, fellowship in a small group of friends, wherever you find that fellowship, there is something very, very important about drawing alongside others and drawing alongside God collectively. The word sanctuary that's used here is actually a plural word. It's mikdash. This probably refers to the precincts or the outer courts of the temple. This was the place where worshippers would assemble together to learn about God from him and from one another. This is the place where Jesus taught. And we don't know what it was that Asaph heard in verse 17 when he entered the sanctuary of God. Maybe it was someone expounding some of the wisdom literature. Someone unpacking something in the, in the scriptures. Maybe it was a personal word from God. Maybe it was a prophetic word from someone else. We don't know what it was. But by being in the family of God, by being among those children he refers to in verse 15, something about that changed his perspective. So my question for you is, how many times or when did it last happen that you walked through those doors and walked out with a totally different paradigm? A totally different perspective on something you were facing from being here in the sanctuary, here with the people of God. When was it that you last went to life group, sat down, opened the scriptures and came away thinking, oh my word, my world has been blown apart. If that isn't your experience, then either we're doing something wrong or you're doing something wrong. Because this is the place, friends, where we can experience that change. Where we can experience a paradigm shift and God can reset our perspectives. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed. Completely swept away by terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so when you arise, O Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. Verse 18. He's returned to that metaphor of the slippery ground again, hasn't he? Remember that mountain climb? But now it's the wicked that he's seeing there. He's seeing that it's not that the wicked have everything dandy. They're the ones on the dicey path. They're the ones on the slippery places. By processing these things through, by sharing his heart honestly with God, by being in the sanctuary with other believers, he's finding himself on increasingly solid ground. While he realizes that those people that he was looking at are actually the ones at risk. Is this ringing any Jesus bells for you? Matthew 7 the wise and the foolish builders. He who trusts in my words is like the man who builds his house upon a rock. He's beginning to see that it is them who are on the slippery ground. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Nice to say, isn't it? The word heart here is, uh, is not in the original text at all. That's a paraphrase to just help our understanding. Literally, that verse says, When my soul grew sour and I was stabbed in the kidneys. The kidneys were our equivalent of a heart. They were believed to be the center of a person's emotional well-being. They were the absolute core of self. He's saying, when I let myself think in that way, I was growing sour 
and my very center felt like I was being stabbed. I was in pain in my deepest place. By sinking into that place of bitterness and envy, I found myself somehow as something less than human. This is what sin does. Sin stops us being truly human. We often talk about the human condition as though it was always our destiny to be sinful. It wasn't. It isn't. A truly human person is made in the image of God. Jesus is the perfect representation of man. He is the second Adam. He is the one who shows us what true humanity is like. We talk about sin missing the mark, don't we? And we talk about that being God's standard. And that's true. We are missing God's standard for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, the character of God. But the standard, the mark, is not just what true godliness looks like. It's what true humanity should look like. That's the mark that we are missing when we sin. And this envy, this covetousness, this attitude that Asaph has is reducing him. He's making him less than human. This is not saying we shouldn't share those troubles with God. We absolutely should. We bring our sin, our warped attitudes, our messed up perspectives to God. That's what Asaph's doing. It's a very dangerous place to be to think that we can't talk to God about our sins. That is a terrifying place to be. And I think sometimes we can be careless in our language in church. Have you ever heard phrases like this? God's holiness cannot tolerate sin. Something that I picked up through my years growing up and and at uni, and I kind of picked up this idea, God can't be near sin. He can't be in sin's presence. And that's why heaven's going to not have any sin in it, because God can't be there. That's not the God we see in Jesus. We don't see a Jesus who can't be anywhere near that dirty sin. Jesus was the friend of sinners. He's the one who hung out with hookers and with crooks and with criminals. And he got close to them. And he wanted to redeem and restore and illuminate that sin. He wanted to shift their perspectives. That's what's going on for Asaph. Not, God can't tolerate sin, so I mustn't be honest with him and I mustn't talk about this. Asaph is just honestly sharing his sinful heart, but he lets God realign his perspective as he comes here in the sanctuary. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me into glory. It's sometimes important, isn't it, to remember that we're reading the Bible backwards. We read through verses like this, and we're comfortable with it because we're post-Pentecost. We are steeped in the idea of the Holy Spirit being with us, the Spirit of Christ being among us, God being here, living inside of us. Those are all truths that we believe and that we're very familiar with. This was written hundreds of years before Pentecost. But that same relational, intimate God that we find who draws near to us through the Holy Spirit, who we worship and talk to and adore today, that same New Testament God is right here hundreds of years earlier, always with us. Always holding us, guiding us. This is massive. This is totally different to so many of the gods of the period. So many of the deities and the idols around Israel at the time would not have had anything like this relational dynamic that's being articulated here about God. One commentator, when I was reading, said, there's a, there's a sermon right here. Grasped, guided, glorified. Romans 8.29 echoes this. For those who foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he called. 
Those whom he called, he justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Grasped, guided, glorified. But that's not the whole story. Even that doesn't go far enough. Because when you look into the Hebrew verb forms, there weren't tenses so much in Hebrew, but we can understand it grammatically through tenses. That verse has a beautiful progression. The word hold is in the perfect tense. God has grasped. He has taken hold. It's done. We are held by God. The word guide is an ongoing thing. It's the imperfect. And of course, will glorify is the future. You will take me into glory. We have been grasped by God. We have been held by him. The result of that is his ongoing presence with us to lead and to guide us into all truth. And our destiny is glory. That glory is not heaven. That glory is to be like him. 1 John 3, 2. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. This is the journey we are on to being fully human. This is what we will be glorified means. We will look like Jesus. Our image will be restored once more. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Are you getting the the echo of verse 9 here? Do you remember when the wicked lay claim to heaven and earth as their own? Asaph doesn't do this. Instead, he disregards both heaven and earth. And he says, the only thing that I want is relationship with the God who is Lord over both. I'm not scrabbling for lordship in heaven or for possessions on earth. I'm just reaching out for the God who is Lord of both. Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Charles Wesley, on his deathbed, was thinking about verse 25. He composed a hymn based on it as his final testimony. He called his wife to him and dictated, In age and feebleness extreme, what shall a sinful worm redeem? Jesus, my only hope thou art, strength of my failing flesh and heart. Oh, could I catch a smile from thee and drop into eternity? And remember the mountain? Those slippery places of verse 2 and verse 18, we lose it in translation here. But he cycled right back to that because the Hebrew, where we say God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, the Hebrew actually says God is the rocky summit of my heart and my portion forever. Isn't that amazing? We started with that slippery place. My foot had almost slipped. We then look at the wicked on those slippery paths. And now Asaph finds himself found in God, the rocky summit of my heart. I got so excited when I read that and dug into that. This is our solid ground. And my portion forever. That word portion is the same Hebrew word that's used right the way back in Joshua to describe the allotment of the land of Canaan to the tribes of Israel. The psalmist says, my share, my portion, my ground, my allotment is the rocky summit, the Lord God. There is a tragedy, I think, in some presentations of the gospel. 
that seem to put the sole emphasis on going to heaven when you die. We need to be saved so that one day we won't be there, we'll be there. That's a tiny part of the gospel, but it is only a tiny part. Because the beautiful adventure of the gospel is that through the cross, we are invited into the most intimate relationship with God, that Jesus made a way for us to have that relationship with God here, now, today. For us to have God as the rocky summit of our heart. God becomes our portion, our inheritance. Ephesians, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee of our inheritance. He is the rocky summit of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge, and I will tell of all your deeds. What a journey we've been on with Asaph. From that cold theological truth that he opened with, that just seems to fail to match his experience, to this place here, this place of nearness and of intimacy and of purpose and of dependency. And it is from that place that we speak to others. I will tell of all your deeds. It is from that place, not from the dizzying heights of theological truth. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. I shall now preach a nice sermon on that. No, it is through the struggle. It is through our honest wrestling with God. That's where we've come. And that's where we speak to others. One final thing just to draw your attention to. Grammar geeks will enjoy this. Because there's a progression in the main pronouns of the psalm, the dominant pronouns of the psalm. In the first section, up to about verse 12, the big pronoun is they, them, the others, the wicked, the next guy. The psalmist's got his eyes fixed on them at the first part of the psalm. In the second section, verses 13 to 17, the dominant pronoun is I. And look at my tricky place. Look at my tough things. This is what I'm doing about it. He looks to himself, he falls into those unjustified comparisons. And then you think, this is where we're going, Rob. This is where I see you're going. Because in the third section, the dominant pronoun is you. Here the psalmist has stopped comparing himself to other people and has started thinking about God. Isn't that wonderful? But that's not where it stops, because that only takes us as far as verse 22. In the final section, in verses 23 to 28, you and I are combined. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterwards, you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? You seeing this? Isn't that wonderful? That it's not looking at them, it's not looking at me, it's not even just looking up at God. It's about seeing that relationship, that coming together of God and man. That's what draws him to the place where he says, You have your hand set upon me, and I for my part want nothing on earth but you. As for me, it is good to be near God. If you forget everything else from the last 20 minutes, take that away. As for me, it is good to be near God. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Rob. That was really helpful.